This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. What makes a brand too offensive or immoral to go to market? That's something that the Supreme Court will decide in Iancu v. v. Brunetti, a case that involves the use of profanity in a clothing line. Los Angeles designer Eric Brunetti started his own streetwear clothing company with the name, and I'm going to spell it out, F-U-C-T, but pronounced like the curse word. Brunetti wanted to trademark the name so that he could try and shut down copyright competition. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office rejected his application as it deemed it, the brand, I should say, in violation of the federal statute barring protection of profanity. Brunetti sued the government, saying this violates his First Amendment rights. He says he has a strong case given two years ago. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of an Asian-American band called The Slants, in another trademark dispute. So what impact could this particular case have? With more, we're joined here in studio by Polk Wagner, law professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. And on the phone, we are joined by John Squires, partner at the law firm of Dilworth Paxson LLP, and also chairman of the IP and emerging company practice at the firm as well. Polk, great seeing you again. Always good to be here, Dan. Thank you, John. Great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be on the phone with you. Thank you. With the example I give here, Polk, does this clump, uh, this clothing company, F-U-C-T, have a path towards getting a trademark? Well, I think they probably do, but it largely depends on whether or not the um, Supreme Court rules in the way that, it, that I think they're going to, and we can talk about that over the next several minutes. I think it's important to understand what's really at stake here. Now, there's nothing... Um, there's there's nothing the government is saying that they can't use this mark, that they can't distribute the clothing line uh, under the F-U-C-T mark as they have been since around 1991. So this is this is a uh, T-shirts and, and, and hat brand that's been uh, around for a while. What what they want to do, however, is get a federally registered trademark, yep. which would then allow them to bring lawsuits against a variety of um, potential counterfeiters or people. People who are trying to use the same um, uh, four-letter word on their own T-shirts and hats. And so that's really what's at stake. Nothing here would prevent um, Mr. Brunetti from continuing to market, um, to advertise, to do whatever he wants uh, with his his uh, brand. It would just be whether or not he's going to have this uh, legal right to go after people who are also using it. And that's really what's uh, what the question is. And the, and the question is, does um, uh, does the prohibition, which is in both the statute and the regulations um, surrounding trademarks uh, on, uh, you know, immoral or scandalous marks, yeah. uh, is that a violation of the First Amendment? And it raises some you know, very interesting issues uh, surrounding First Amendment law. John, your thoughts? Uh, yes, I wholeheartedly agree. The, um, the trademark system in the U.S. is, a, is just that. It's a registration system. So uh, it's not about his ability to, um, to say or have a T-shirt with his mark. Uh, it's about whether the government will register that as a trademark, which would be enforceable against others using that. Uh, trademark protection comes down to, uh, uh, in essence, a badge of origin. You're associating the goods or services in the mind of the purchaser with the source of the goods. So that's what's at stake here, uh, not whether he can uh, uh, publicly say vulgarity, but whether there's uh, government-granted rights. So the question is... Um, 
really a collision course between free speech and government-granted IP rights, and then the issue is who wins. Well, and John, it's interesting, and there's a variety of interesting elements to this story, but one of the things that Mr. Brunetti mentions is that F-U-C-T, he also views it as an acronym for Friends You Can Trust, which he goes back to his days in, in kind of the skateboarding world and the people that, you know, if you were out skateboarding, you could really believe in and, and talk to and, and confide in. So there's also, I think, the distinction of how the word, even though it is pronounced like the profanity, what the word is actually meaning or, or what it is actually laying out to mean. Well, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a little bit down in the weeds of the examination question. Uh, as to the badge of origin. So um, he has, um, I think, a forceful argument. I don't know if it's going to be compelling. Um, but there's, in the trademark doctrine, law and examination, there's sort of sight, sound, and meaning. Uh, and if, uh, you know, things are spelled fancifully, it doesn't necessarily differentiate you uh, from the, uh, you know, from the spelling of the offensive term. So, uh, you know, that would be part of the examination process, but really it comes down to, um, the basis on which the office denied his application as being uh, uh, immoral or scandalous. Um, and as you set it up, it's a little bit different uh, than the uh, – he's pointing to the slants decision from two years earlier. Right. An interesting question that, uh, you know, for the second time in two years, the Supreme Court uh, picks up the case. And I'd be very interested in um, Professor Wagner's take as to um, – uh, why uh, they they took this one? I was a little bit surprised myself that they took it, uh, given the uh, the Slants decision. But the Slants decision was based on a different uh, provision in the trademark law, and that was whether um, the mark that they wanted to register was disparaging. Uh, it was a right. uh, ethnic slur, uh, and that was a different provision. The uh, Supreme Court came down eight nothing, by the way. Uh, and said, no, uh, it's, uh, the government can't express a viewpoint, uh, even though it's disparaging. Um, this, uh, this term um, is uh, free speech prevails. Uh, and that provision of disparagement went down. Uh, what remaining in a different basis that the trademark uh, office rejected the uh, FUCT uh, application on uh, is the immoral scandalous basis, and the question is, will that um, be struck down or, or modified? And what's, uh, um, again, the government interest there versus the uh, private enterprise interest? Yeah, so I may agree with a lot of that. I think that this is uh, an interesting case, not necessarily so much for trademark law, although obviously it, it deals with trademark law. It, it raises some very complicated and, frankly, fairly difficult questions about uh, what the First Amendment, what the scope of the First Amendment really is. Um, it's quite clear that you can't be arrested uh, for saying the, the, you know, a four-letter word or for wearing it on a T-shirt or even marketing and advertising it. You know, there may be companies that have various policies against doing so, but that's not something that can be criminalized. That would be clear violations of the First Amendment. The question is, when the government is giving something out, when they are handing out some sort of valuable, in this case, uh, right um, or asset, um, that raises a different set of concerns because then there's a government interest in itself not supporting um, particular kinds of speech uh, that the government might decide is unwise. But of course, right. when the government says it's uh, you know we don't like this, are they 
engaging in viewpoint discrimination, which is a absolute no-no when it right. comes to the First Amendment, or are they instead simply engaging in the you know the the government's traditional role as a regulator of of the marketplace? And yeah. so the government's argument here is well. This particular statutory provision, um, which prohibits immoral and scandalous marks, is simply an attempt to keep the government from essentially endorsing um, uh, offensive types of speech. Right. Um, now, of course, the response is, well, even making the judgment about certain things being offensive is itself a, a, <laughs> yes. a form of viewpoint discrimination, as Brunetti himself points out. Right. He says, I don't consider my four letter word to be. Uh, offensive at all because it's an acronym. It's yeah. not even a four-letter word. I'm not using mm-hmm. it. I mean, he may be or may not. He does this all with right. a wink, right? He's, I, an, I, he's I, an artist. I will, way, say, so. I will say, I just pulled up his Twitter account, and he does have on the Twitter account friends you can trust on there. So, yeah. and again, that may be just to support his argument at the time and being. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there's no reason to doubt that that's part of what it is, and that's right. part of the cleverness, and it's part of, I think, what appeals. The marketing, yeah. Yeah, so that, yeah. that he can have these dual uses, and so that's one of the points, which is if, you know, if there's a statutory provision that is drafted and applied in a way um, that encompasses both things that everybody would consider offensive as well as things that different people are are not going to consider offensive, then really should the government be in the business of trying to police that? Well, I, I guess it's interesting because he, I've seen a variety of articles on this where they also lay out the fact that the Patent and Trademark Office have taken certain instances of words that are close to being profane and have approved them, and other instances where they have not. So one of the cases they said was, uh, I believe, another clothing line that was FCUK, where they approved it. But when something came up with the term middle finger in it, they did not approve it. So it's, I guess, I think what a lot of people are wondering is, can we get a, a, a kind of a standard line of of where we need to be with either the approval or not of these particular instances. Yeah, and I think that's the that is of course the really difficult question and the one that that if you sort of listen to or read the the transcript at the oral argument at the Supreme Court that the justices were wrestling with, right? Because yeah. it's very clear that the the Patent and Trademark Office has been, you know, to a large degree all over the map in yeah. this, right? Yeah. And they have they've approved things that you would think, no, maybe they shouldn't have approved that. They've they've denied things that you would think are not particularly offensive. And and they even have regulations saying that if a if a substantial portion of the public would consider it offensive or reject it, that seems clearly dis allowed under yeah. viewpoint discrimination. So one of the odd things about the way this case presents itself is that the Solicitor General had to had to stand up and essentially say, well, going forward, we're going to enforce this in only an extremely narrow way, um, only when we're really concerned that that the, that the particular language at issue is is truly and deeply offensive to you know significant portions of the uh, of the public, and it would not um, be appropriate for the government to be supporting that. Now, of course, that's not the way they've applied this provision for um, the past several decades. And so, one of the the interesting issues about this case is: Do you take, you know, do you approve a statute? Do you uphold a statute on the grounds that the government's now from here forward going right. to apply it in a little bit different way? And I don't know what the answer to that is. And that's one of the the very interesting aspects of this case. John, uh, I agree. I too read the uh, uh, the transcript of oral argument and the press reports on that. And interestingly, this may be why they took it up in the first place, um, is 
that's a little bit of a different argument than the substance of uh, whether it can be registered uh, in light of um, uh, in, and the uh, immoral or scandalous uh, standard upheld. The, the question there is, are they applying this so-called standard in an arbitrary and capricious manner? And that's more of an agency law doctrine that uh, these agencies um, that are of the executive branch uh, have really uh, ha have to apply their uh, rules in a um, consistent manner, not in an arbitrary, capricious manner. So if they're found to be arbitrary, capricious, then the rule could go down without really potentially getting to the substantive question. I guess this be it becomes, John, a, 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 when you get into this type of an area, it becomes a very important component from a variety of, uh, of aspects, and especially with this company, FUCT, and as, as uh, Polk Wagner mentioned, the marketing of that brand and the success that it can have, and then also trying to make sure that you're potentially stopping copyright. But, but we're also in a culture now where the use of certain profane words is considered to be more more natural, more accepted than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So we're in a little bit of a different culture time and aspect as well. Well, that's, uh, yeah, and look, you know, meanings uh, change over time. Exactly what he's trying to do by uh, the friends you can't trust uh, argument is show secondary meaning to the term that, uh, you know, again, sight sound and meaning is uh, offensive or um, uh, vulgar on its face. And, you know, there's the existential question, of course, uh, of disparaging and vulgar and scandalous and uh, offensive, you know, what's uh, are those distinctions with a difference? As the Lanham Act, the trademark uh, standard uh, was to be applied by the office, there uh, there was a difference. Um, but that is a very interesting question, and that's why I think this case is interesting. But I think the more profound case uh, was already decided two years ago in the Slants case, and there. The Slants wanted to uh, register their trademark uh, self-titled band name um, to uh, reclaim some cultural heritage uh, that had been, uh, you know, kind of leveled against them as a slur. Um, so they publicly acquired the kind of very words uh, previously used to kind of shame them into silence and submission, uh, and now used, uh, trying to use those words by acquiring intellectual property rights in them. Uh, as a source of pride and to change the meaning over time with, uh, and they can infuse that meaning in today's culture. So uh, I, you know, I think the more profound uh, issue, um, and Professor Wagner may, may disagree with me, but I think the more profound issue was uh, sort of the, uh, the social effect from the slants. Uh, this, to me, is a little bit more about t selling T-shirts uh, and sort of direct commerce, but I think the um, the movement or the uh, uh, source of pride imbuing with meaning of groups who self-select and in today's uh, you know ubiquitous social media environment, uh, how dynamic and changeable uh, meaning can be. Um, that's a little bit more of the profound uh, uh, free speech case, uh, in my opinion. It's certainly the more important case uh, in terms of its actual effect was the the, uh, the TAM case involving the, the, the slants mark um, because, uh, you know, that 
particular provision, uh, the prohibition on what the uh, statute describes as disparaging marks, had a much broader potential effect. There were a lot more um, marks that could potentially be denied under that. I mean, what we're talking about here when we're talking about immoral and scandalous, assuming that if this survives, it's going to be a very narrow um, uh, set of of words um, right. yeah. that are going to be denied. It almost has to be, doesn't it? It it certainly has to be because again, the the government can't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. The government's interest in protecting people from offense is not particularly strong, except in very very limited areas. Um, and you know, the government has an interest in not being associated with certain types of phrases or words. Um, but that it has to show that that's really what it's doing here. And so I think, you know, the 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 Tam case was an easy case from a First Amendment perspective. It right. was important culturally, socially, and for trademark law. Um, this case is a little bit of a harder case for um, the, the, from the perspective of First Amendment doctrine because it really gets at the question of, is there a limit to what the government uh, – can the government put limits on, on what it's distributing out in terms of assets? Well, and I guess one of the other concerns also – and I've seen this, that the, the patent office also factored in the imagery that is being used by this clothing company, F-U-C-T, in terms of the marketing of that name and the marketing of that line. And so how does the imagery that they may be using in this also play in a role? Well, certainly, sight and sounds are are you know the the way that it that it that you evaluate trademarks. Um, I should note that as a as a matter as a sort of procedural matter in this particular case, this is what's known as a, a challenge to the statute on its face, right. uh, which means that although uh, you can give the the F, the way that they dealt with the FUCT mark. Um, as an example, in fact, what Mr. Brunetti is challenging is that the entire statutory language, not just applied to him, but just generally is invalid. That's right. what happened in the TAM case. They held the entire idea of trying to limit disparaging trademarks is just invalid on its face. Um, they're trying to do that again. That's another interesting wrinkle in this case, right? Because we might agree that there are certain words that you would just not want the government to have sure. trademarked, right? Yeah, yeah. Racial slurs, for example, sure. was a big um, thing at the at the oral argument. Lots of the justices asking questions uh, about how how the government was going to deal with, with racial slurs. Are they going to issue trademarks on those? Are we going to see advertising using uh, those sorts of things? Um, and that's, you know, that's that would be a, an interesting issue. Here, the question is, you know, is this just as a general matter, is it just impossible for the government to ever deny a trademark because it's immoral or scandalous? So that's, you know, an interesting question. I think, you know, I think Brunetti's got a very strong case that that he should get a registration on FUCT. But that's actually, I mean, he will win if he wins that case. But then, in, in sort of point of fact, that's that's not quite. He's arguing something much broader. He's arguing that the whole statutory scheme is is unconstitutional. John, yes, I, I agree. Um, and then, and the question is, and he, I agree, he's definitely arguing much broader. Uh, the question, um, to my mind, then becomes um, how narrowly tailored uh, the decision from the court would be uh, or not, and how far would this go. For example, we're able to have a um, much freer conversation about uh, these type of terms 
uh, because we're on um, Sirius XM radio uh, yeah. than we would be uh, if we were on the public airwaves, which the FCC, uh, you know, would have because they own the airwaves or they they, uh, they dole out the spectrum. Uh, the government interest uh, is to not have uh, vulgarity. Uh, and, seven you know, dirty words, right? Yeah, exactly. So. This, uh, yeah, I grew up in the, <laughs> in the well, era of the seven dirty words you can't say on TV. Howard, Howard, you can't say them. Howard Stern. Howard Stern being here on Sirius XM, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and you could see what the, the – and the market selected that, right? Uh, people yep. sort of voted with their uh, subscriptions uh, to be able to listen to um, to the programming, which would include uh, those type of terms. So um, my question would be uh, whether this could leak into sort of the um, prohibitions that the FCC uh, has on uh, on public airwaves. Uh, it's, a, uh, of course, a different agency, different statutory structure. But um, the question would be, how far does this go? I, I think that's a huge question, is just where the the FCC could potentially take this down the road. Sure. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's at the heart of this is this question about when the government is is giving out some sort of benefit, whether it be um, the right to transmit on a particular frequency yeah. or a trademark that you can assert against somebody else or, frankly, anything else that the government does, um, is the government allowed to put limits on that related to the content of um, the the communication that you are engaging in. Yeah. In general, in the United States, we think that because of our First Amendment, the government should stay out of the business of trying to police communications. Yep. However, when you're when the government itself is the one who's giving out benefits, that's a little bit a different question, right? Yeah. That is that's uh, you know the um, that makes the issue much more complicated. And you know the final what I thought was very interesting is the very final argument that the Solicitor General's office made uh, to the justices is look, you know you may feel uncomfortable about uh, about <laughs> this you know us being engaged in evaluating the content of somebody's trademark, but that's what we do. We yeah. do the whole. There's a whole statutory scheme. There's all sorts of ways that we evaluate what your trademark is along a whole set of of um, uh, criteria that's based on content. Just one more of those is whether it's going to offend a whole bunch of people, and and we should be able to do that. Like we say, you can't confuse people. You can't, you know, you can't um, uh, use a mark that somebody's already got. Those sorts of criteria are all based on content. This is really not that much different. Well, John, it's it's even a unique aspect of, of this case being presented before the justices and how the justices themselves were going to handle the description of this company, which obviously none of the nine justices, I think, wanted to use the actual word. But they were going to I think the, the lawyers and the justices both agreed that they would spell out the company name so that it would not be actually uttered as the profanity. Very interesting, and in fact, uh, I was, uh, I think, even more interesting from the fact that a lot of the um, questions and oral argument was uh, around, uh, tiptoeing around uh, saying the word, uh, one of the seven dirty ones, um, was from Judge uh, Justice Gorsuch, who did not participate because I don't think he had been um, seated uh, in, the, uh, in the TAM case, in the slants issue. So um, that was a... Uh, Quite an uh, interesting dynamic um, that even came through uh, the pages and the press reports that I read about it. 
844-WHARTON is the number. If you would like to join in with your comments or questions, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Polk, I would think, though, that whatever the decision comes down, and then obviously we talk about you know how this is going to be kind of narrowly focused on, on words and how they would be used for it. I still think this this area still has a lot of room to run in terms of uh, of the usage of this type of uh, of terminology moving forward. Sure, there's there's certainly. I mean, it's, if the statute falls, um, there are certainly going to be a lot more uh, potential registrations um, that would be available. It would be you know uh, one reason that the that the you know trademark office cannot reject your um, your trademark. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it could have some benefit. I mean, one of the, the interesting things to me as, a, as an intellectual property scholar is that there's, you know, this does crop up uh, sometimes even in other areas of intellectual property, this sort of general issue, which is sort of this collision between morality and intellectual property, right? right. What is the limit of what we think is okay for the government to do? So, for example, in the patent context, we talk a lot about things like cloning technology, right? right. So, you know, am I allowed to patent, you know, my own clone? Right. So that the, the federal government has taken the position, the patent office has taken the position, no, we will not be giving uh, patents on, uh, you know, half human, half animals or human cloning. Right. Um, there's no basis in the actual statutory language right. uh, of the patent law to do that. If it's inventive, if it's non-obvious, if it creates something that's useful – the, the law says they should grant that, but they, you know, they will not. Yeah. And so this this is pressing on these corners of the intellectual property law that I think are fascinating, not only uh, for the intellectual property law, but for how we as a society think about the ways that morality, value judgment should be sort of integrated into our into our, you know, what is otherwise a sort of straightforward business area of business. And, and I guess, John, then that that opens the door to thinking about where as a culture, as a society, we may be. And obviously we can't you know determine that immediately, but where we may be in 20 or 30 years and whether that thought process of the people that would be involved in the patent office uh, and, and and obviously potentially on the Supreme Court and other areas, where that thinking actually may take us in the future. Well, exactly right. I mean, the examiners in the trademark office and the patent uh, office are, are human beings uh, and, uh, you know, uh, part of society as well. And they're going to be, uh, you know, immersed in the fabric of the culture of the time. Uh, and the question is, you know, what is... Um, of the relative standard uh, of making these decisions and how um, does a government um, effectuate those sort of moral choices and, and how do you do that? Uh, you know, uh, the uh, legislature is supposed to be the representative body and, you know, and the laws uh, will come from there or should come from there, but they're going to, you know, smack right up against the uh, First Amendment and the Bill of Rights protections. Uh, and that is, I think, as we're seeing, a, uh, a shifting standard, um, as we saw in the Tam Slants case. Uh, you know, this probably was uh, unthinkable um, 20, 30 years ago. Now it looks like it might be a force for positive uh, societal change, uh, given the leverage that um, the groups can have by 
potentially reclaiming heritage uh, and denigrating um, the force of, of slurs that used to be leveled against them. Uh, and we'll also see you know, how far the freedom of expression goes uh, in a case just like this one, everyone here, about apparel, T-shirts, and uh, you know, more uh, immediate um, uh, expression of, uh, of, of words. But again, it's interesting, Polk, because of the fact that what one person may believe as profane, another person may not believe as profane. And again, you're going to run into that, that dichotomy all across society. Right. And I, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for um, the, the Supreme Court to figure out a way to uphold the statute as it's currently written. I right. think that, you know, one of the sort of scenarios I could see happening is that they strike down the statute in part because of the way the PTO has to date interpreted it is clearly incorrect. In yeah. fact, the Solicitor General's office agreed that was wrong. Um, so I think that it's going to be tough to uphold it as it's currently written. But you could see a, an opinion from the Supreme Court saying, you know, we're not against the concept of trying to limit uh, offensive, uh, truly deeply offensive trademarks. Right. But this language just doesn't cut it. This language just doesn't meet First Amendment standards. If Congress wants to pass something um, that's narrower, that's more direct, that it's going to allow us to only deny trademark ability for those things that we all sort of agree are truly and deeply offensive, then I think that might pass the First Amendment. Otherwise, no. Great having you both with us. Great to see you, Polk. Thank you. John, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your insight. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Polk Wagner from here at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. John Squires at the law firm of uh, Dilworth Paxson and also chairman of the IP and Emerging Company Practice at the firm as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.